Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 21. I'm going to cover in this audio verses 17 through 40. Our context is this. Paul and his fellow workers that he brought back from Macedonia, from Corinth, are on their way back on the third journey, and they have left Miletus, where they said goodbye to the Ephesian elders. Then they went to Patera on the Lycian coast, left there, took another ship there, and took an open sea vessel across the Mediterranean, sailed all the way back to Tyre, landed in Tyre, met the brothers there. The brothers said, no, 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 don't go to Jerusalem. Then they went down the Mediterranean coast a little ways further to Ptolemaeus, present-day Akko. And then they left Ptolemaeus, and they went down to Caesarea, which is now we're in Jerusalem, in Israel. And there, Agabus, a prophet from Jerusalem, came up to the coast to Caesarea and said, No, Paul. Well, he didn't say, don't go to Jerusalem. He said, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. And he tied a belt around his, Agabus's hands and feet and said, this is what's going to happen to you. Well, Paul said, I'm going anyway. If I have to die, I'm going to go. And so he goes. So we'll pick it up here in Acts 21, verse 17. When we reach Jerusalem, that we there refers to, of course, Luke, as well as the other brothers, which are Secundus and Aristarchus from Thessalonica, Sopater from Berea. Trophimus and Tychicus from Ephesus and Gaius of Derby. I said Tychicus was from Ephesus. Actually, we don't know that for sure. He was from Asia. Could have been from Ephesus. Could have been from somewhere else in Asia. So they reached Jerusalem. And Timothy, I left out Timothy. He was with them too. When they reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us gladly. And I notice it's the brothers, not just the elders, but the brothers. They didn't have a lot of hierarchy and rank and titles. They were just the brothers. They welcomed us gladly. Now, the NIV Study Bible says they got to Jerusalem a day or two before Pentecost. Now, Paul said from the very beginning, from the time he left, he said, I wanted to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. That's why he did not stay long at Ephesus. In fact, he bypassed Ephesus. and He was in a hurry the whole time. It looks like he made it. In previous audios, I was wondering whether he made it. And actually, I'm just taking the NIV Study Bible's word for it right now because I don't know how they proved that he made it. But apparently, according to them... Paul and his fellow workers made it a couple days before Pentecost. Now, of course, he wanted to get there before Pentecost because they were, he wanted to give the Jerusalem the the poor offering for the famine relief at Jerusalem. There would be a lot of pilgrims in Pentecost at that time. They would need money and also be able to give him a chance to evangelize because there would be a lot of Jews in Jerusalem. So that's why he was trying to get there before Pentecost. And now, with the brothers welcomed Paul and compadres gladly, that could indicate that they were very grateful for the reception of the poor offering, according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, notice that there is no ill will on the part of the Jerusalem brothers because of Paul and company's ministry to the Gentiles. They didn't care. That's fine with them. But Paul had a reason to worry about his reception because there were a lot of religious Jews at Jerusalem for Pentecost, and those guys, they loved the law, and many of them hated Christianity. And that's where Paul was going. As we're going to see in just a minute, he started a riot when he got there. Not to mention the fact that Agabus the prophet already told him there was going to be trouble. He was going to be arrested and turned over to the Gentiles, Agabus predicted. Now, Paul obviously was concerned about this. He had written to the Romans from Corinth before he left in Romans 15, 30-31. Now I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that the gift I am bringing to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul was under no 
illusion that everybody was going to believe the gospel. There were always unbelievers around persecuting him, and he was headed for a hotbed of unbelief in Jerusalem, and Paul asked the Romans to please pray for him, and for good reason, as we'll see. Acts 21, verse 18. The following day, Paul went in with us. Again, Luke is writing, so he says us. So Paul went in with us, and I assume that the other brethren that I've mentioned from uh, Lister and Derby, Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and also Secundus and Aristarchus from Thessalonica and Sopater from Berea, they all went to see James, and all the elders were present. Now, who is this James? I'm going to assume it's the brother of the Lord. I know that people argue about this sometimes, but that seems to be the, the majority opinion. The NIV Study Bible says it's James, the same author of the letter of James. He was the leader, one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. The NIV Study Bible says the leader, but I don't. I, I wonder about that, because what about Peter and John, the other pillar epistles? In Galatians 1.19, when Paul talks about his trip to Jerusalem after he got converted up in Damascus, came to Jerusalem, he says, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James. So there were other apostles. And in Galatians 2.9, he mentions James, Cephas, and John. He says, when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, recognized as pillars, that is, pillars of the church of Jerusalem, acknowledged the grace that had given to me, blah, 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 blah. So there were three leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Now, maybe James was the only one there at the time when Paul and his party shows up. I don't know. Maybe Peter was out evangelizing somewhere. Maybe John was doing the same thing. Or maybe John had already taken off. He ended up, of course, he ended up on the Isle of Patmos, actually. But he also ended up in Ephesus from church history. We know that he did a lot of work around Ephesus. And they say that after he did, he received the book of Revelation, he also went to Ephesus and worked there. So I don't know where Peter and John were when Paul and company showed up. But James was there, and so he met them. Now, it says James and all the elders were present. Does this mean that James was an elder amongst all the other elders? It could be read that way. Or it could be read this way. James is different than all the elders who were present. Paul went in with us to James, separate category, and all the elders who were present. I don't think so. I think when apostle-type people walk around, I mean, work, excuse me, move around, starting and strengthening churches, they're called apostles. When they stay in one place and work, then they'll be elders, leaders of a local church. And James here apparently was planted, so I assume he was one of the elders of the church. Again, the early church was not ruled by one guy, ruled by plural elders. They had leadership. James was a leader, but he was just one of the many elders. This is very, very, very easy to prove scripturally, especially in Acts chapter 20. Now, I have an interesting church government question here. I used to always object to elders meeting separately from churches. I never saw that in the scriptures anywhere. Elders meet separately. It was always the elders led the church in consensual decision making. They all got together and made the decision. Everybody present. That's the way, you know, the early church met in houses. I like to meet. I would love to meet in a house church. I have done it for many years. And that's what I believe the way it ought to be done. The elders lead, but they lead with with the input of everybody that's there. They don't have separate elders meetings, make a decision, then come out and announce it ex cathedra to the church. Well, somebody could say, but right here we have the elders meeting separately, James and all the elders. Well, I would say to that that verse 17, the previous verse says, the brothers welcomed us gladly, which might mean more than the elders. And then the following day in verse 18, it says James and all the elders were present, but it doesn't say all, it doesn't say that James and the elders were exclusively present. They could have been present in the midst of the other brothers too. So can't prove anything by that verse saying that elders had separate meetings apart from the rest of the church. Now, this was an important meeting. 
because the offering was involved. Money is always important. And also the Gentile question. Paul's out here going to preach to those Gentile dogs, and that's going to cause a lot of upsetness here in Jerusalem, and they're going to, we're going to deal with that in just a minute. So it was logical that the elders were there because this was a big deal. They had to deal with it. Acts 21, 19. After greeting them, he related in detail what God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. That means after Paul, after greeting James and the other elders of the church of Jerusalem, he, Paul, related in detail what God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, he had done the same thing at the Jerusalem Council. This is before the first journey, or excuse me, after the first journey, before the second journey, in Acts 15. At that council there in Jerusalem, we read this in Acts 15, verse 12. Then the whole assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Again, that's the issue. How can God give his kingdom to the dirty, nasty dogs of Gentiles. And Paul said, well, he's doing it. Now, James, of course, was at the Jerusalem Council, as we know, at reading Acts 15. So he heard that account, too. And now here's another account. After the first journey, he hears an account of Gentiles getting saved by Paul's ministry. And now here, after the third journey, he's hearing the same thing. Gentiles getting saved by Paul's ministry. And by the way, Paul also related about the Gentiles getting saved after the first journey. Acts 14, 27, after they arrived and gathered the church together, this is at Antioch, they, that's Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So after the first journey, a report about the Gentiles getting saved. After the second journey, excuse me, uh, after the first journey, a report to the church at Antioch about the Gentiles getting saved. After the first journey, a report to the Jerusalem Council about the Gentiles getting saved. Now here, after the third journey, a report to the Jerusalem church about the Gentiles getting saved. They got the message. Now he related in detail what God had done among the G Gentiles. He didn't just give a broad brush summary. He wanted to be sure that his Gentile ministry would not offend these Jewish Christians. And so he told them all about it. He probably included the details about Jewish opposition. And Paul's countermeasures, for example, in, in Corinth, when the Jews started raising sand with him, he said, to heck with you, and he, and he moved next door to Titius Justice's house. And so he probably said, look, I did everything, I didn't do anything to offend the Jews. I didn't tell them that, that Judaism was stunk, that it was bad. I didn't do anything to offend them. I just told the Gentiles they didn't have to get circumcised, but they could come into the kingdom. So he told them everything, and they had every reason to believe him, after, especially after the Jerusalem Council, that his ministry to the Gentiles was quite proper. We go to Acts 21, verse 20. When they heard it, that's James and his fellow Jerusalem church elders, when they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they're all zealous for the law. And so now they're saying, Well, the good news is we've got thousands of Jews that have believed. Many thousands were converted at the first Pentecost, as we know from the earlier chapters of Acts, and many more must have been converted since then, as John Gill points out. And so James and the Jerusalem elders are saying, well, this is great, man. There's lots of Jews that have been converted. And then James says, and they're all zealous for the law. So I guess that's the bad news. Lots of Jews got believe, had believed, but they still didn't understand that they were free from the law. Not only were the thousands of Jews in Jerusalem converted, but also, Paul had been out there preaching in synagogues. You know, he got people converted on his three missionary trips. And there were also Jews outside of Jerusalem who had visited Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost, previous Pentecost, as well as this one. They could have gotten saved. So there's lots of Jews that got saved. 
And James says they're all zealous for the law. So, and, and what he's saying is, Paul, you're going to have a problem here because they got the wrong idea about you. They think you're anti-Jewish now because of your gospel of freedom in the Lord. Now, this is my comment here. It seems to me that this is an example of how zealous baby Christians are often untaught and unlearned in the scriptures, unlearned in the scriptures. Lots and lots and lots of zealous baby Christians. In fact, I love them. They're just like kids. They're all excited, but they don't know anything. Not much. They know just enough to get themselves in trouble. Well, anyway, they glorified God, these elders. They, they knew that there was a problem about all those Jews being zealous for the law, but they still glorified God. They were happy, not sad, about the Gentile conversions, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out. But it seems to me they had not led the Jerusalem flock into the truth yet of Gentile freedom. This is Now, remember, this is about 15 years, I think. Let's see, how many years is this after the Jerusalem? Maybe not 15 years. It's about uh, over five years since the Jerusalem Council probably closer to eight, six, seven, eight years. It's been a long time since the Jerusalem Council, and you would think the Jerusalem church would have learned by now that, hey, Gentiles are coming into the kingdom, but apparently there's still trouble. The besetting problem of the early church, this problem of how to deal with Jew and Gentile. We go to verse 21 of Acts 21. But they have been told, that means they, these believing Jews, they have been told about you, you Paul, that you Paul teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, that means in the diaspora, scattered outside of Jerusalem in Asia Minor, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses by telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk in our customs. Now, that's what they were saying about Paul. But was it true? No, it wasn't true. He didn't tell Jews they didn't have to be Jewish. He just said you don't have to get circumcised to get saved. You don't have to be a Jewish follower of the law of Moses in order to know Jesus. That's all he was saying. And so they just took it a step further and mis- misrepresented him and said, this is what you're saying. Kind of like you say, oh, I'm, I believe in legal immigration and border controls. Oh, you hate Mexicans. <laughs> so it's real easy to misinterpret people's polemical stance. Uh, not, not polemical stance, but uh, theological stance. It's real easy to polemicize somebody's theological stand and make them say something they don't mean to be saying. And that's what was happening to Paul. As Adam Clark said, this was a misrepresentation of Paul. He had said circumcision was an indifferent matter, as John Gill says. It was not necessary for salvation, but Paul never said circumcision couldn't be practiced optionally or keeping the law could not be practiced optionally. He never said that. He had said, in fact, that circumcisions were okay if it was to satisfy the concerns of weak brothers. He even went so far as to say that. That's not being anti-Jewish. That's saying, hey, we'll, we'll circumcise Gentiles if it means keeping a Jew from getting upset. To the Jews, he became as a Jew. 1 Corinthians 9.20 and 21. Paul says this, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. Well, does that sound like he's anti-Jewish? I don't think so. Not at all. And Adam Clark points out he never said that Jews could not circumcise their children. And that's exactly what Paul was being accused of. As James and the elders tell Paul, All the people out here are saying that you were telling Jews in the diaspora not to circumcise their children. He never said that. He was getting some bad, fake press. And he says, and, and Paul was accused of not, of, by the Jews of teaching that Jews should not walk in our customs. And you know as well as I do, there's nothing harder to do is to get for people to get rid of their customs. I have lived cross-culturally for decades now, and I'm telling you, it's hard to get rid of my American customs as long as I've been in China. I'm still an American. And you tell anybody, I tell Chinese people, I say, you can be in America for 50 years. I don't care. You're still Chinese. You'll never get rid of your customs. 
And so and that's one thing Christians need to learn. I mean, remember when Hudson Taylor went to China and all the early British missionaries going over there wearing, wearing those Victorian dresses that looked like it took 200 yards of cloth to make them, all these bustles and bonnets and all this nonsense, and all the Chinese people looked at them like they were from outer space? It's absurd. And he said, no, we're going to wear Chinese clothes. We're not going to make people think that we're weird. Chinese, uh, Hudson Taylor was exactly right. You don't attack people's customs. You do. You become as a Jew to the Jews to win Jews. You become as a Gentile to Gentiles. Customs don't matter. Theology does. All right, so we go to verse, verses 22, 23, and 24 in Acts 21. So, James and the Jews continue. So what is to be done? They, the Jews, the believing Jews, will certainly hear that you, Paul, have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have obligated themselves with a vow. That's four Jewish men who have obligated themselves with a vow. And that vow is probably a Nazarite vow, very famous vow, described in number 6, 2 through 12. I'm not going to go through the details of it, but basically you said you're not going to drink wine, you're going to, sh- and you're going to let your hair grow to separate yourself unto God. James continues in verse 24, Acts 21. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Now this is the ritual that goes at the end of one of these vows, the Nazarite vow. The length of it was voluntary. You chose, but when it came time to purify yourself at the end and get you, and and shave your head at the end of the of, of the of the vow period, that took seven days. You had to purify yourself with ablutions and washings and such. And Paul had said you had to pay for them to get the head shaved. That's because they had to have animals sacrificed along with its purification rituals. And I'm going to mention the animals in a minute. It seems there's a, a split of opinion on how many animals Paul had to pay for, then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing, but that you yourself are also careful about observing the law by doing the proper rituals to end a Nazarite vow, not observing the law to get saved. Now, this was, in my opinion, was very intelligent on the part of James and the Jerusalem elders because it's an object lesson. Everybody can look at him and say, oh, you say he's anti-Jewish. Well, look at that over there. He just paid for four guys paid for the sacrifices for four guys to end their vow, probably a Nazarite vow, and to shave their heads. And and so obviously he's not against the law, is he now? Very smart, I think. Now the NIV Study Bible says that this was probably a Nazarite vow and that the four brothers had probably become unclean before the completion of the vow. The law in Leviticus 6, in, in number 6, says that if that happens, you have to start over. You have to clean yourself, go through a ritual, offer some sacrifices, wash yourself, and then start growing your hair again. It starts all over. And this is probably what happened. Maybe they had come through contact with a dead body or something. That's speculation reasonable, I think, on the part of the NIV study Bible. Here's the relevant quotation from number 6-9. If someone suddenly dies near him, the person taking a Nazarite vow, defiling his consecrated head of hair. He must shave his head on the day of his purification. He is to shave it on the seventh day. So you have to purify for seven days. On the seventh day, you shave your head. And that's what these four guys were going through. And they had to offer, offer offerings at the beginning, I guess at the beginning of that period, or at some time during that period. Now, these purification rites, the Nazarite vow, is totally voluntary. It's not required of any Christian not required of any Jewish Christian, not required of any Gentile Christian, as the NIV Study Bible says. Some Christians were observing them as a, observing a Nazarite vow as a matter of choice. And actually, didn't even Paul take a, a Nazarite vow in the port of Sincrea? Coming back, I think it was from his second journey. Yes, his second journey, Acts 18.18. 18. So Paul, having stayed on for many days at Corinth, 
said goodbye to the brothers and sailed away to Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He shaved his head at Syncria. That's the port city of Corinth. Shaved his head at Syncria because he had taken a vow. It doesn't say Nazarite vow, but it was some kind of vow. And he shaved his head because the time was over for the vow. So that's one more example of how Paul's not against the Jewish religion. He himself took a vow. He wasn't against Jewish customs. Now, he was going to pay for these four brothers, these four Jewish brothers who were completing their vow. And that means he would have to buy sacrifices. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that for four men, the sacrifices would be eight pigeons and four lambs. Relatively expensive. Adam Clark says it would take eight lambs, four rams, plus flour and oil. Maybe Clark thinks this is a different kind of vow, some kind of thank offering, I don't know. But either way, whoever's right about how many lambs it took, how's a poor apostle going to buy all that stuff? Seems to me the expenses were pretty heavy for an itinerant apostle with no money. So I assume the church must have helped him, the Jerusalem church. Now, I mentioned that Paul had kept a Nazarite vow, thus showing he was not against the Jewish religion, practiced voluntarily. Also, Paul actually had a Gentile circumcised Timothy in Acts 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, what does Timothy's father being a Greek have to do with it? Well, it's because if Jews in those places saw that Paul, a Jew, was carrying around a Greek guy and claiming that you could be a Christian and live like a pagan Gentile without being circumcised, it would cause discredit on his ministry, and so he circumcised him. In other words, Paul hanging around with a Greek guy and preaching Christianity was going to be a stumbling block to the Jews. Now, we need to contrast that with Galatians 2.3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Well, that's because there was some kind of a dispute over, do we need to get circumcised in order to get saved? And Paul's not going to circumcise somebody in that context, because then it would sh- it would broadcast to people that it, was, that it was okay to require circumcision for salvation, which would, of course, be a horrible compromise of the gospel. So he, re- he refused to circumcise Titus in that situation. Now, I don't know when this situation was that Titus was with Paul, but it's mentioned in Galatians 2, 3. But at any rate, it's very clear that Paul has not been against the Jewish religion with these two examples of taking a vow at Syncria of circumcising Timothy. Now, let me ask you a question. All this stuff, did it really work? Did the James and the elders plan for Paul to pay the expenses of the purification of the Nazarite vow? Did it work? Well, I don't know. I guess it made the Jewish Christians happy, but it sure didn't calm down the unbelieving Jews because they started a riot. Didn't work with them at all. We go to verse 25 of chapter 21. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written, this is James still speaking to Paul, James and the elders. With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter, that's we at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, have written a letter, that's the famous letter from the Jerusalem Council, containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. And James here is just repeating what Paul already, already knew. He was at the council. In fact, he carried the letter. He and Barnabas, along with Judas and Silas, went from Jerusalem back up to Antioch, carrying that letter so he knew it. Well, why did James mention it again? Well, it does seem kind of strange he's mentioning it to Paul again, probably because James is just repeating what Paul already knows in order to show that James and his fellow elders have no problem with Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, hey, we know you're preaching to the Gentiles. Hey, we've written a letter to the Gentiles saying that they don't have to get circumcised in order to get saved, just like what you're teaching. 
I've already talked about that in Acts 15, but I'll briefly, the food sacrificed to idols and blood is, and from what is strangled, the food sacrificed to idols uh, would cause a Jew to stumble, for obviously, blood and what is strangled, which means eat with blood still in it, and probably those two things are the same thing. Maybe the blood is drinking the blood separately. But anyway, it's the idea of blood. Stay away from that because that would cause a Jew to stumble. And of course, from sexual immorality, that goes without saying. And he's saying, look, Gentiles, just take it easy on the Jews. You're going to cause them to stumble and the gospel will never get, go anywhere. But he's not saying that you need to get saved by not eating food sacrificed to idols, etc. He's not saying that. We go to verse 26 of Acts 21. Then Paul took the men, that's the four men who were going through their vow purification, then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification. Purifying meant you had to wash yourself with water and so forth. And he gave notice to the priests there, the completion of the days of purification. Hey, we, uh, the four guys have finished their days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And so he's saying, here's the sacrifice, here's the animals, I'm paying for it. So priest, how about check them off, they finished their purification for the vow. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul participated in the vow. It doesn't mean that Paul quit drinking wine and, and letting his hair grow long. The, the four people, the four men had already done that. This was the purification at the end of the Nazarite vow. And Paul didn't, and Paul didn't do that anyway. He was just paying for them to do it. Now, Adam Clark says that by doing this, many people have severely censored Paul as making the greatest mistake of his life for doing this. And they've looked on Paul's subsequent troubles, his arrest and imprisonment, as punishment for paying for those four brothers' purification ritual. No, I don't think so at all. First of all, in defense of Paul, we can say this, as Adam Clark does. James and the elders in Jerusalem told him to do it. Well, I guess you could say, well, they told him to do it, but he shouldn't have done it. But that was their advice. They were the ones in charge there in Jerusalem. They knew what was going on. Paul was not stupid. He was not going to do something that would contradict his whole life, as Adam Clark said. He risked his life constantly offending the Jews by preaching grace. So you can't accuse him of cowardice just because he went in here and paid for those guys to get their purification sacrifices done. You can't blame him for that. You can't say he wasn't he was a coward for not standing up to the Jews. He spent his whole life offending Jews by preaching grace. This was merely to show that he was not against Jewish customs. It was an expedient thing. There's nothing wrong with it. Paul himself never later censored his own conduct. Adam Clark says on other occasions Paul acknowledged his failings and errors. I think like in Corinthians he said he didn't speak well or something. He was of short stature or, or, or unimpressive appearance, I think he says. So, but anyway, you know, he, he was humble. And if he had made a mistake here, you'd think he might have owned up to it somewhere, but he never did. No other Christian in the Bible ever censored Paul for what he did. So, no, we're not going to say anything bad about Paul. I think what he did was perfectly legitimate. Verse 27 in Acts 21, when the seven days were almost over, that's the seven days of purification for the four guys who were getting purified from the Nazarite vow. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple. Now, these are not Jews from Jerusalem. Now, these are Jews from Asia. Followed Paul all the way into Jerusalem, all the way from Ephesus. Upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. Now, Paul had already suffered at the hands of the Asian Jews, and now they're coming to bedevil him again. In Acts 20, verse 19, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, he mentions, he says this, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. That was at Ephesus. These Jews were probably chiefly from Ephesus, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. 
especially because they recognize Trophimus as a talisman. And we see in verse 29, Trophimus is called a, a Ephesian. Trophimus the Ephesian was seen by the Jews, and they recognized him. So how did they recognize the Christian Trophimus? How did the Jews recognize Trophimus unless they were from Asia? So there's probably Asian Jews, probably Ephesian Jews. It's speculation, but it's reasonable. And so we see here Paul being tracked all over, all the way from, that's a long way away, all the way from Ephesus, all the way to Jerusalem, just so they could harass him, stirring up the crowd. This guy's against us Jews. He hates Jews. He's anti-Semitic, <laughs> or something to that effect. And they actually grabbed Paul. It says they laid hands on him. They weren't just verbally abusing him. They were getting ready to beat the mud out of him. We go to verses 28 and 29 of Acts 21. Crying out, this is the age from Jews, the a the Jews from Asia, men of Israel, come to our aid. Why, why did they need aid? Aid, one puny man, and a couple of helpers. So you got to get a whole mob after them. John Gill says they maybe later wanted to be called to account. If they were called to account for their actions, they could say, well, you know, we had all these Jerusalem Jews helping us out. It's not just us Asian Jews. Everybody's upset with this guy. And the Asian Jews were probably uh, careful. They didn't want to start a riot because, you know, the authorities, they hated Christianity, but they didn't like riots. And they could have very well have been called to account for their actions. And here they are getting ready to start a riot. So they want to say, hey, we want some backup. We want some backup from you Jerusalem Jews. All right. So we continue in verse 28. This is the man, say these Asian Jews. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. See, they lied. He never as I previously said, Paul never preached against the Jews. Paul said he would like to die and lose his salvation to, to save the Jews. In Romans 11, later on, he loved the Jews. And against this place, that's talking about the temple, that's where they were. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they lied about that. Trophimus had not been brought into the temple. He had not gone into the court of the women where only Jews could go. He had not gone through the court of the Gentiles into the court of women. He was just in the city outside the temple precincts. And, they, and the Asian Jews saw him. They probably recognized him because he was a fellow Ephesian. And so they twist the facts and accuse Paul of something that he hadn't done. He hadn't defiled that holy place. Now, this man preached to all men everywhere. They say that Paul preached against the people and the law. Well, that's because Paul said you don't get, need to get saved by keeping the law. So therefore, he's preaching against the law. Hey, how many times How many times do Christians call each other antinomians because they say we're free from the law of Moses? How many times do Presbyterian and Reformed theologians say that against New Covenant theologians? Lots and lots and lots of times. So you get, you're going to get accused of being anti-law when you say that we're free from the law. It's going to happen. It happened to Paul. And, say these Asian Jews, Paul was preaching against this place. Not because he says now God doesn't need to live in a temple. He lives all over the world. As Stephen said it in Acts 7 when he was being stoned to death. And Paul is saying that, hey, you know, now the temple of God is the church. And the Shekinah glory is the Holy Spirit living inside the church. He doesn't live in the Holy of Holies anymore. He lives inside the hearts of individual believers. And by the way, this generation shall not pass from this. And when this temple shall be torn down stone from stone. Now, the Asian Jews might have had a point about that. <laughs> they might have had a point about Paul speaking against this place. If Paul ever repeated Jesus' words of Olivet Discourse about the temple being torn down stone for stone. So we'll give them that. But. Paul was not preaching against the Jews, and he was not preaching against the law. Paul, in fact, said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews in one of his 
letters, if you recall. A Hebrew of Hebrews is not anti-Jewish. Now, they said that he brought a, a Greek into the, a Gentile into the temple area. Well, look, if they were upset about that, they should have gotten the man who came in with him, Trophimus. They should have gone after Trophimus instead of Paul, as NIV Study Bible correctly points out. Trophimus, you recall, was one of the original, how many is it? One, two, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then when you add Luke, eight people that traveled with Paul all the way from Corinth, all the way back to Jerusalem at the end of the third journey. Trophimus was one of those eight. Now, Paul, as I said earlier, the Asian Jews had no evidence that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple. They were, in, they were just trying to incite a lynch mob. Paul was not stupid. He could read the stone inscriptions which promised death to Greeks who enter here. These kind of famous inscriptions, you know. You enter here, you die, Gentile. <laughs> so, and I think I read somewhere that, I think it was the NIV Study Bible that said that those stone inscriptions are still there. You can still see them. Now, I said that the Asian Jews were complaining about Paul speaking against the Jewish people. And I said, how can you say that when Paul was so friendly to the Jews and he loved the Jews, he'd go to hell for the Jews. But on the other hand, there are some stuff that Paul would say that might cause people to get upset if you're a devout Jew. For example, you're, Paul is also going to say that there's, the Jews are no longer the exclusively chosen people. The Gentiles are now included, and the, the Jews didn't like Gentiles. They thought they were dogs, and you say, the Gentiles are going to share the kingdom with us? And then I've already mentioned AD 70, they wouldn't like that either, that their place would be destroyed. And the divine worship is no longer to be centered in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not going to be the center of the world anymore. So yeah, there's in, inherent in the gospel, there's going to be some anti-Orthodox rabbinic Jewish stuff that's going to, going to be opposed by the gospel. But on the other hand, if you really look at it closer, Paul is not really, he's not against the Jewish people, he's against the Jewish system, if you will. That's like saying somebody says, well, I hate Democrats. Well, you don't have any right to hate a Democrat. You, got, you can hate the system, you can hate the party, you can hate everything they do, but you can't hate an individual Democrat. You've got no right to do that. Acts 21 verse 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together. That's the city of Jerusalem, of course. The people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. The doors were shut by the order of the temple officer. Why did they want to shut Paul out of the temple? Those doors were probably the doors leading into the, the court of the Gentiles on the very outside of the temple. I don't, or it could be the doors before you get into the court of women except I don't know if there were doors there. I'm not sure enough about the ancient temple architecture, but so somewhere in front of one of those two courts, the doors were shut. Now the question is, is why? Well, here's some options. First option, to prevent further trouble in the temple area, just to keep Paul out. He's rousing up the people. Option number two, to keep Paul from coming back in and seeking refuge on the horns of the altar and saying, you're not going to catch me. You're not going to kill me because if you kill me on the horns of the bronze altar, you have committed a horrible sacrilege. That's John Gill's speculation. Adam Clark speculates is to keep Paul from getting help from his friends in the temple. Javis, Fawcett, Brown, and John Gill say it's to keep the murder of Paul from polluting the holy place. They were planning to kill him. If they kill him in the temple, ooh, that's going to be another bad sacrilege. Well, that's similar to what I said about him grabbing hold of the horns of the altar to keep him from grabbing there, in which case they couldn't kill him, or if they, or if they got him before if, if Paul came in and before he got to the altar, they caught him and murdered him in the temple, it would pollute the temple. They didn't want that to happen, so they shut the doors to keep him out. John Gill says they were definitely intending to kill Paul, and I don't doubt that in the least. And they were in the process of beating him up. And isn't that ironic? The murderers are more concerned about ritual cleanliness than murder. We, we don't want to pollute the temple. 
we're killing this guy, we're murdering him, but that's okay. We're doing God's work, but we don't want to mess with the temple. Adam Clark says that they probably took Paul to the court of the Gentiles, which means that the doors were shut on the court of the women, but I, or because the court of the Gentiles was not as holy as the rest of the place. But my feeling is he probably took him all the way out of the court of the Gentiles, all, all the way out of the temple, because killing anybody that close to the temple is going to, I can imagine people would have compunctions against that. We go to verse 31, Acts 21. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now remember, of course, now the Jews are under the control of the Romans at this time. And there was a Roman cohort stationed there in the Antonia, Antonia, what do you call it? The, what do they call it? The fortress, the fortress of Antonia right there on the northwest corner of the temple complex. It's still there. You can go when you go to the Temple Mountain in Israel. You can look across there and there it is. It's big, you know, this is a big stone building. Now, the commander there is called Achillearch. He was the commander of a thousand, a regiment. His name was Claudius Lysias. We learned that from Acts 23, 26, when he wrote a letter to Felix, the governor in Caesarea. He, he, he said, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. That's how we know what his name is. He was stationed right there at the fortress uh, at Antonia, right there in the northwest corner of the temple complex there. The north end of the temple area had two flights of steps that went up to that fortress. And so since Claudius Lysias was nearby, he could hear the riot that was going on in the temple area. There was a tower there of the fortress of Antonia that overlooked the temple area. And Claudius Lysias could go out and see that they were seeking to kill him, as Luke says in verse 31 of Acts 21, while they were seeking to kill him. And that doesn't mean they were just looking for him to find him. They had already grabbed him there, and they're gonna, they, got his, they got their physical hands on him, as we'll see in a minute verse 32 which we'll read now acts 21 32 at once he took that's claudius lysus lysius took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them ran down the steps from antonia the fortress ran down into the temple complex there and when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating paul so lysius probably saved paul's life right there claudius lysius the roman the roman military commander you see, they were beating Paul. They had grabbed hands on him, and they were beating him. You notice there was more than one centurion that ran down to save Paul. It was centurions, which means that when they were, t when the soldiers that came with those two centurions came down, there was probably 200 of them, 100 each for each centurion. Lots of soldiers. Stop the mob. We go to verse 33 in Acts 21. Then the commander, that's Claudius Lysias, came up and took hold of him, took hold of Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and began asking who he was and what he had done. Now, he had to do that. He had to bound, bind Paul, one chain on one side, one chain on the other, chaining them two soldiers is usually what they did. And the, he did that because he thought that maybe this guy's a criminal and done something bad. He was going to check him out. That's one option. Another option is he just wanted to bind him to appease the crowd, to get the crowd to shut up. And he figured, well, if he's innocent or guilty, I don't know, but I'm going to bind him to make him look like he's guilty so I can get the crowd to stop rioting. At any rate, whatever his motives was, his actions fulfilled Agabus's earlier prophecy in, in this chapter, Acts 21, verse 11, when Paul was up there at Caesarea, out, out on the coast at Caesarea. And coming to us, he, that's Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus, Agabus's prophecy was right on. It came to pass. Now, when it says that the commander came and took hold of Paul, the Jews reported that later when they were reporting to Felix, which is, who was the Roman governor at Caesarea, 
when they were reporting to Felix, they said it was done with great violence. Acts 24, verse 7, But Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands. This is the Jews talking about what Claudius Lysias had done and taking him with much violence, trying to make Lysias look bad. I'll tell you who was doing the violence. It wasn't Paul. It was the Jewish mob. Acts 21, verse 34, But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. That's the way crowds do. They don't know. That's why we call it mob violence. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. That's the barracks somewhere around that fortress, Antonia Fortress, maybe inside the fortress. I don't know. Some of the people didn't even know what the original charge against Paul was. They're just mad and frenzy. They were motivated by blind zeal for Moses, the law, and the temple, says John Gill. Now, one thing about Lysias, and this is what I love, he was trying to find out the facts. Every judicial proceeding, you, the first thing before you make a legal judgment, you have to find out the facts. When your two kids come to you, all bent out of shape with each other about some argument, you have to find out the facts first before you make a judgment. And that's why if somebody accuses somebody of something else, you have to find out the facts first. For example, do not take an elder, do not take an accusation against an elder, except on the witness of two elders, I think it is. Why? Because you have to find out the facts first. You don't go around accusing somebody before you got the evidence. That's just plain stupid. It's also illegal. So that's one thing about the Roman courts. They, oftentimes they did try to find out the facts. If you look all when Paul and the apostles ended up in a judicial proceeding in, of the, in, in a court of the Romans or a tribunal of the Romans, they generally tried to find out the facts. How about Pontius Pilate? Now, of course, that was a terrible situation, and he caved to the mob. But at first, he was trying to find out the facts. He was doing a good job at first. He did find out the facts. He found out Jesus was innocent, and he condemned him anyway. So, but it, he didn't do bad in trying to find out the facts. What he did bad was he didn't act properly when he discovered the facts. We go to Acts 21, verses 35 through 36. When he got to the stairs, that's when Paul got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. They had to pick him up, keep him away from the mob because they were still trying to kill Paul. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. So it was a tough job these soldiers had and rescuing Paul, we go to verse 37 of Acts 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he, Claudius Lysias, the commander, said, Do you know Greek? Now, first of all, notice what Paul said. He was very courteous. May I say something to you? Even in English. I mean, it, 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 this far removed, it sounds polite. May I say something to you? Here's a cultured, educated Jew asking politely. Now, you know that must have had some, made an impression on Lysias. He might think, this guy don't seem like a typical rabble-rouser. So he says that, and then he, he says, do you know Greek, Paul? Because Paul was speaking to him in Greek, I'm sure. He would speak to a Roman in Greek. Paul didn't know Latin. And as a matter of fact, we'll, as we'll see here in a minute, Claudius Lysias probably didn't know Latin either. So Paul used Koine Greek to talk to him. And the commander, Claudius Lysias, said, Paul, do you know Greek? Why did he say that? Well, I think as John Gill and another commentator named Meyer, they both say it's because that Claudius Lysias was surprised. He's in Jerusalem. Now, why was he surprised? Well, it could be several reasons. One is he's in Jerusalem. He thought a Jerusalem Jew would be speaking Aramaic or Hebrew or Aramaic. And then instead he spoke Greek. Whoa, that's surprising. He could have thought Paul was the Egyptian that he's going to mention in the next verse, an Egyptian false, false messiah who had caused a riot. And he might have thought Paul was that Egyptian, and Egyptians mainly spoke Greek at that time. So he's 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 that might be. In other words, he might not have been surprised that Paul was speaking Greek because he thought Paul was a Jew. 
he might have been thinking, oh, you're an Egyptian, and, and Egyptians usually know Greek. Do you know Greek? That's Gill's idea. I don't think that's what it is, but that's what he says. And it's obvious that the soldier would probably be Lydia, Claudius Lysias would probably want to speak Greek himself because that was the language he knew the best. He was not a native Roman citizen, knowing Latin very well, not to mention the fact Paul probably couldn't speak Latin. He had bought his citizenship, Acts 22, verse 28, as Adam Clark points out. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Well, if you buy your citizenship, you're probably not a native Latin guy. And it would be hard to understand a second language like Aramaic with all the noise going on. So when Paul's speaking Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect, it would be hard for Claudius Lysias to understand. So he says, hey, you speak Greek? Hot dog. I can understand you now, so let's speak Greek. Another option that John Gill mentions is maybe he didn't want the crowd to understand what he was speaking to Paul. So we spoke. he said, do you speak Greek? So let's speak Greek now so the Jews down there can't hear. Well, what are the languages they're going to speak? I don't know what language that this soldier would probably know. And besides, there are probably Hellenistic Jews around that can understand Greek, so I don't really think that, that, that Gill's right on that speculation. I don't think he's trying to hide things from the, the crowd. I think he's just happy to speak Greek because he was surprised that, he knew, that Paul knew Greek. And since he knew Greek, he wanted to speak Greek with him. We go to verse 38 in Acts 21. Claudius Lysias continues talking to Paul. Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And a New American Study Bible has that assassins capitalized with an A. Now, who is this Egyptian? Josephus tells of an Egyptian false prophet who led thousands to the Mount of Olives, as the NIV Study Bible points out. And the Roman soldiers under Felix the governor, who we're going to meet in just next chapter or so, the Roman soldiers under Felix the governor killed hundreds of these assassins, or, or these, or these, excuse me, killed hundreds of these thousands of people who were led out to the Mount of Olives, but the leader escaped, according to the NIV Study Bible, so that means Claudius Lysias might well think that Paul was the Egyptian that had escaped. Now, even though Felix, the governor, had killed hundreds of them, the leader was still out, and so Claudius Lysias might be thinking, aha, you're the guy, you're the leader. This false prophet went out there to the Mount of Olives and said the walls around Jerusalem would fall at his command. And he was planning to take the city of Jerusalem from the Romans. He was a nut job. His name is unknown. There's an interesting side note here. The NIV Study Bible says that Josephus wrongly records this incident and says the number that were led out to the Mount of Olives was 30,000, whereas Luke here says it was 4,000. Claudius Lysias said it was 4,000 as recorded by Luke. NIV Study Bible, looking at options to reconcile that, says that Josephus had misread a Greek capital letter when he read the uh, account. Or John Gill says that the false prophet led out 4,000 at first and the number swelled later to 30,000. And so Luke and Josephus are recording different times. Or that Claudius Lysus is talking about a different time that b before the number got up to 30,000. Or it could have been that the false prophet led 30,000 people in general out in general out to the Mount of Olives, but only 4,000 of them were assassins. That would reconcile it. Adam Clark suggests this, that the false prophet led 30,000 out at first, but the number shrank when the prophet didn't perform his promise, when the walls didn't around Jerusalem didn't fall down. And so it, they ended up with 4,000. It doesn't matter. I don't know whether Josephus is right or not, but we assume that, well, of course, I'm going to assume Luke is right because I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. 4,000 men of the assassins were out in the wilderness. All right. Now, the word assassin is a loan word that comes from the Latin sicari. It means a sort of a crooked knife, as Adam Clark said. And these assassins would conceal the knife under their garments, and then they would privately stab their targets. 
Acts 21, verse 39. But Paul said, Paul is answering Claudius Lysias now. Paul says this, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. Well, Tarsus is a very famous city. It's mentioned all the time in secular history. I mean, Alexander the Great actually almost died there. He jumped into the cold river that ran near the city, the Sidnes River, and he got struck numb. Took him a while. had a fever, and he almost died, but he recovered. I forgot how long it took him. I think it was about three weeks. But anyway, Tarsus was a big, and it was also, if you look at the map, you go to the northwest corner of the Mediterranean, excuse me, the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea, and just as you go around that corner to the west, that's basically where Tarsus is, that's the Cilician province, right behind Tarsus, about 30, way, 30 miles away to the north of the famous Cilician Gates, which are passes that cut through the Taurus Mountains there and get you from the east to the west so you can go over there to Anatolia where all the Greek cities were. Of course, they're Roman by now. Gateway from going from east to the west. It was a very important commercial city. It was very rich. It was a university town. They had a lot of philosophers there. Julius Caesar had thought the town was so important that he had endowed, endowed the inhabitants of Tarsus with a Roman citizenship. That's how Paul got his Roman citizenship. Now, that's why Paul said he's a citizen of no insignificant city. Tarsus, why did Paul mention all this stuff about how great his city was? Some people say that it's almost as great as Rome and Alexandria and Antioch. It ranked up there right there with the big ones. Why? And it ranked up there with Rome and Athens, says, Clark, says Adam Clark. Why is Paul mentioning this? He's trying to show he's not some rube rabble-rouser. Not some hick, not some petty anti-criminal. He was a citizen of a great city in the great Roman Empire. Of course, this makes sense. He's talking to a Roman commander. Now, Paul asked Claudius Lysias, Lysias, please, please, I beg you, he says, allow me to speak to the people. Why does Paul want to speak to a mob? He probably wants to shut, to calm them down, and maybe he wants to evangelize them. He, he might have been wanting to stop that riot. The riot's still going on now while Lysias, Claudius Lysias and Paul are talking. And riots are not good. They're not good for Israel. They're not good for Jerusalem. They're not good for anybody. Paul wanted to stop that riot. Romans don't like riots. Acts 21, verse 40. When he had given him permission, when Lydias had given Paul permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, those are the stairs that run up to the Antonia barracks, the fortress where the barracks are, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned, motioned to the people with his hand. And he was, of course, chained on left and right hand to soldiers, but there was enough slack where he could lift his hand up. And why did he do that? He's saying, hey, guys, how about stop and listen to me? And when there was a great hush, they, it worked. They stopped and listened. He spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, in Aramaic, saying, comma. And Adam Clark's got a great comment here. He said, this is a most unnatural way to end a chapter with a comma. And it really is. <laughs> saying, boom, in the chapter. And since I'm going by chapters, we're going to have to wait till my next audio when we get to Acts chapter 22 to find out what Paul said to the mob. We'll do that next time. I hope you enjoyed this. Oh, before I leave, let me point out what Paul spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. The NIV margin has possibly Hebrew as another possible manuscript reading. He spoke to them in Hebrew, but that's, the NIV study Bible says that's unlikely because most Palestinian Jews spoke Aramaic. The dialect of Hebrew, not Hebrew itself. Aramaic was the vernacular tongue of the Palestinian Jews since the captivity, since 586 B.C., and so it's probably Aramaic he spoke in. And Aramaic is still around, and a few people were speaking it in Iraq, and ISIS wiped out these 
they were they were ancient Christian type of people, and ISIS wiped it out. And I read that the Aramaic was in danger of dying as a dialect because of those wonderful people who were trying to get their four virgins in the afterlife. I hope, I suppose, Aramaic is still around, which is amazing. I know that the great movie, The Passion of Christ, that Mel Gibson movie, that was all, the whole movie was done in Aramaic to, to make it more realistic. I still think that was cool, the way that was done. But at any rate, I hope you enjoyed this audio, and I hope you stay tuned as we see what Paul says to the mob in our next audio.